Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. I'm delighted to have Francis DiClemente on the podcast tonight. He's an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, an exciting fact in itself. But tonight, we will focus on his acclaim as a poet and author. He has been published in both print and online journals and authored multiple poetry collections. Tonight, we will discuss his latest collection, The Truth I Must Invent, published by Poet's Choice in this year, 2023. Francis has been a guest on this podcast several times. So he's a member of the family. So let's welcome him back. Hello, Francis. Hello, sir. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Well, I'm real, I'm real happy. As I share with you anytime I have an opportunity to talk to you, it makes me happy. It makes me happy, too. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's begin this poetic journey. You published a new book, The Truth I Must Invent. Wow, that's a title in itself. What inspired you to write the book? I guess I'm inspired to write poetry all the time. It's just kind of like a natural means of expression for me. And so I'm inspired by, you know, different images, sounds, scenes from daily life, walking in the city, um, you know, with my my family. Um, And so once I have, you know, a good group of poems together, uh, you know, a good number, then I kind of sift through them and see like, you know, what, what are some themes, what could work as, as a collection. And that's kind of how this one came about. And, and this one, I I focused more on minimalism and tried to find like, um, tried to keep the poems shorter, um, but still have some meaning to them. Tell us about minimalism. Flesh it out. Yeah, I guess what's kind of interesting is like, I like to kind of strip away lines and see more white space and see if it's still, if still if the meaning of whatever poem that you're trying to get across still holds up. And it's like, if you can keep pairing it back and pairing it back. And so, I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but I, I like the challenge of it. It's a line level. You know, it's been a while since you've been here with me mm-hmm. and I can't remember, I should have looked it up. I'm not sure whether it was before the pandemic or no, I think it may have been before the pandemic. How did that impact your writing? Uh, you know, I just, I, you know, it was, everything was so empty, but I was still going out for walks. And so mm-hmm. I guess I was kind of inspired by that. Um, and also, you, you know, no one really knew what was happening. And so yes. you kind of had like this, the sand going through like the hourglass and like you never know when your time could be up. So I... I I kind of wanted to like write down stuff to at least, you know, capture those feelings at that time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I did have a few pandemic related poems, but um, yeah, it, it was challenging, I guess, for everybody. For everyone, you're correct. Mm-hmm. The title, the truth I must invent. <laughs> oh, wow. I like that one. Tell me about it. Okay. So that it, it just came kind of organically in a line in one of the poems in, in the collection. And the, the title of, of that poem is called destination. And it's, it's about regret and um, reconciling with mistakes and judgment, you know, like looking back at my younger self and, and seeing where I am now and maybe kind of where my hopes had been for, for me. And so that it just happened to be a line in the poem and the line is these are the lies I need to believe and the truth I must invent. And so when I saw it on on the page, I really liked the way it looked. So I just took the truth I must invent. Now, the cover of the book, what is the setting? It's, it's uh, I mean, I got an image of Pexels, P-E-X-E-L-S. Um, and the photo credit goes to a man named Engin, E-N-G-I-N, X-Yurt. 
Um, I'm not even sure what country he's from, but it was a dark seascape kind of uh, where you see a little bit of the sand and a little bit of the uh, the beachfront, and it was black and white, which I liked, and I thought it, it was fitting for the uh, for the the poems in the book, and uh, you know, it's high contrast and. And then the the publisher Poets Choice did the design with it, and uh, so that that's how that came about. Now, in terms of the cover, now, like you said again, is to me very gray and foreboding. Yeah. Are the, all the poems gray and foreboding? <laughs> I, I, it there's is a light darker. at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> it is darker, but I, I hope that there's some, you know, there is, you know, some hope in there a little bit of, you know, there are a lot of dark themes in there. Um, Mm. But I I think there's also, you know, a measure of gratitude and compassion Mm. uh, for others that I hope to to tap in a little bit. All right. So again, as you think about the book's predominant themes, flesh those out again for us. Okay. So I would say uh, self, self self-acceptance, identity, um, existence, uh, memory, a sense of resilience, and kind of like a willingness to hope even in, in the face of adversity, um, family, parenthood. Um, my son, our son is autistic, so uh, that is like the final section of the book is, is uh, related to my son, Colin. Um, and so I tried to find things that, that are um, universal. Like, I mean, I think you could classify this for sure, as confessional poetry, but I tried to make it as more than just a catharsis or just an individual experience and find, you know, themes that other people could relate to, you know, more universal. All right. Very nice. Thank you so much. Francis, please share poems from your book. Okay. So for this section, uh, it's the opening section of the book. They're more narrative poems. Um, So uh, it comes from different, different angles. This first one is called, is about my late uncle who passed away from pancreatic cancer. And it was just a social video of that some of my cousins had posted. And so this first one is called uncle on screen. The debt, the dead never disappear. They live on through social media. My deceased uncle Fiore appears to me in a surprise party video posted on Facebook less than three months before his passing. He greets his nieces and nephews his shrunken figure enveloped in hugs. At the end of the clip, at about the 18-second mark, he bobs his head and looks up, his black eyes penetrating the glass screen of my computer and locking on me. The frozen image is eerie but also comforting. His expression seems to say, hey, I'm still here even though I'm on the other side. Time and space and decomposition cannot eradicate the bond of love forged during my lifetime. I'm still watching you. And anytime you want to see me, just log into FB and hit play. So that's the first one. Um, the second, second one is a very short one, um, and it's just called Little Spider. All matter clings to life. Even a brown spider fights to stay afloat before it circles the drain. Um, this next one is called Halloween Screening. And the, these next two poems are kind of inspired by like pop culture things. And this is Frankenstein. So it's called Halloween Screening. You can't fault Frankenstein's creature for what he became. He never had a choice. He didn't ask to be born. He didn't seek existence. With an abnormal brain and cobbled parts, he can't be blamed for the terror he unleashed. He was only acting according to his nature. The real monster here is the man who cre- the real monster here is the man who created the creature. And uh, this next one is uh, close to my heart. It's called "Man Inside Nighthawks." And uh, the story with this is uh, Edward Hopper's painting, famous painting, Nighthawks. And I've worked on a play, stage play, about a full-length stage play for more than 10 years. And in fact, I'm still working on another draft um, as we speak. Um, So I'm just really inspired by it. And this just takes the perspective of one of the characters from that painting. Uh, Man Inside Nighthawk. I assume I was nothing before I found myself sitting here, staring straight ahead. 
I can't move my head. I can't smoke the cigarette pressed between the fingers of my right hand or drink the cup of coffee resting on top of the counter. I can't touch the woman seated next to me or talk to the other men in the diner. This is my life, suspended in warm yellow light, trapped in a soundless environment. No water running, no fan whirring or grill sizzling. No sirens or street sounds beyond the glass. Time drags on with no discernible shift, no transition to morning. Here, night never ends. Yet my mind still works. In fact, it never stops. I'm cursed with thoughts that run continuously. Why am I here? And where exactly is here? What purpose do I serve? Do I have a path? Did I live elsewhere before I became frozen in this moment, captured and imprisoned for eternity? If only I could talk. If only I could open my mu- if only I could open my lips and make a sound. Then I could scream for help. But who would hear my voice? If only I could stand up and walk around, stretch my legs and stare outside the window. But since I can't move, the composition will remain unaltered as I will stay locked in place inside this painting hanging on a gallery wall. And uh, the last poem in this set is called Cake Mistake. And this was just um, an idea that I had if somebody was baking a cake at a grocery store and had a spelling error in there. So it's called Cake Mistake. Peggy made a huge mistake when she baked a grocery store celebration cake. She put a D where a T should be in the middle of the word congratulations. The customer was pissed. But Peggy kept silent as the irate woman left the store without paying for her order. Peggy's manager docked her pay and yelled at her for making such a stupid mistake, to which Peggy replied, I never went to college, and there's no spell check when baking a cake, and I'm sorry I screwed up, but I think that D will taste just as sweet as a T, so I'll take that cake home for my kids to eat. End of poem. (laughs) As always, Francis, you know, I love your work. And I don't think I've ever asked you, do you view your ability to be able to write poetry as a creative gift or creative art? Ooh, uh, a little bit of both. I think um, a gift in the sense that I'm, I'm gifted with the desire and the compulsion, really, um, and, and the sense that, you know, Whenever I'm scribbling in a notebook, most of the time the, the, the thoughts that come immediately out come in the form of verse. Um, I think the art comes in like the revision part of it and going through it, you know, line by line, draft by draft. So a little bit of both. Okay. Okay. Now, again, you're very prolific. Mm-hmm. During the selection process, because you're prolific and written countless numbers of poems, numerous poems, how did you decide which poems to choose? Yeah, that's that's a challenge. I think um, I think you have to call and revise and cut. But sort of the way I do it is like I will just have like a, a raw word file of like unpublished poems, you know, and, and that I'm working on, and it could be like you know, 150 pages. It could be a lot. And so what I'll do is I'll just print those up and they won't even be like finished poems a lot of times, but they'll just be like, like a draft, like the first draft of it. And then I'll just go through them like on paper and say, yes, I like this. No, I don't like this. Yes. I like this until I, until I get like, you know, a good set of them. And then then I'll print it up again and go through it like line level and then spread them on the floor and see like, okay, this, these poems seem to go together here. These seem to go together here. And um, I kind of like to, to divide the, poem, the a book in sections because I think it just, it, as me as a reader of poems, sometimes you get bored if it's just like, you know, a long line of poems and there's no break, almost like no chapters in, in a novel. So I like, you know, if you have section one and section two, and it's like, okay, if, if you don't like that one section, then you just have to wait until you get to the next one. So at least for me, that's how I like it. And it keeps me interested too. Very important. You know, you are a seasoned poet. And Allegedly. Allegedly, all right. <laughs> what? 
what makes poets different from other people? What makes poets makes us different, different from other people? Yes. I think, what makes us different? Yes. I think it's just um, observation, being open, mm-hmm. um, and taking advantage of of like openings that the, almost like the universe gives you. You know, like oh, that sound, that woman who's shopping there. Um, you know, the way the light hits. Uh, you know, a particular flower or a bridge. It's just, it's just uh, to me, it's just noticing it. And then, you know, finding like a, an opening to, to some type of art, some type in, in a poem, um, you know, just starting somewhere and then going from there and just being open to the process of it, I guess. All right. All right. Now that's the macro question. The micro question mm-hmm. is what is the one thing that makes your writing unique and different from others? Ooh, that's hard. I, that's hard for me to say. Um, okay, Francis, why should I go out and buy your book? Oh, that's even tougher. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, uh, no, right. I, I think I think I tap into to something that a lot of people feel, you know, in, in emotions and wrestling with emotions, and 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 I think you know people can relate to a lot of those things and. Um, and that, like I said, with a sense of resiliency and, and perseverance and kind of having some hope. Um, and I hope, you know, that that the visuals that are, are the picture, the word pictures that I make, you know, draw people in as well. But honestly, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you keep on doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and doing it well. All right. Please share some more of your work, my friend. Okay, so this set uh, is going to take me back to my youth, um, through my my parents, you know, their their issues, and then, um, you know, as a kid, I had a, a brain tumor on my pituitary gland, and that caused delayed puberty um, when I was growing up. Um, so that that's what this set entails, and there's another set of like narrative poems. This first one's called "Looking Through Spindles." I climb out of bed and clutch the white balusters at the top of the stairs as harsh words fly behind walls too thin to hold my parents' rage. My sister creeps out of her room, shrugs her shoulders, and moves toward me in the hallway, passing the door to the master bedroom. She sits down next to me and whispers, what happened now? I don't know, I say. And we listen for clues, trying to determine the cause of the latest fight. Did dad come home to bed? Did dad come to bed drunk and make advances on our mother? Did she recoil or lash out, scratching his eyes? But we hear no violent action on the other side of the white door, only vases, only voices laced with acrimony. And we remain seated on the stairs, exhausted but unable to fall back asleep. Zooming out, I see those siblings in a Polaroid image sealed under a plastic sheet in a leather-bound photo album, and as the adult looking back, breaking the fourth wall, I wonder why this memory pricks my brain when so many others would illuminate my parents' kindness, decency, and exemplary work ethic. Why, when I could have chosen from a myriad of positive scenarios, does this one seize my attention, demanding to be chronicled? My mother and father are both dead and can't defend their actions, and I feel riddled with guilt for tarnishing their memories. I also understand that the truth doesn't always tell the full story. My conscience obligates me to explain that while mom and dad weren't perfect, they loved us and made sacrifices to make our lives a little better. And while that's a weak way to end a poem, the wider perspective allows me to forgive my mother and father for being human, for being real people and not just my parents. Uh, and this next one is called Craniofringioma, and in parentheses, Youthful Diary Entry. Craniofringioma gave me an excuse for being unattractive. I had a problem inside my head. It wasn't my fault I stood four feet eight inches tall and looked like I was 12 instead of 18 and then 19 instead of 24. I couldn't be blamed for my sans testosterone body straddling the line between male and female. The brain tumor spurred questions about my appearance, aroused ridicule, and provoked sympathy. I heard voices whispering, guess how old that guy is, and is that a dude or a chick? And while I waited for my body to mature, to fall in line, and to achieve normal 
normal progression. I remember wishing the surgeons had left the scalpel inside my skull before they closed me up, knitting the stitches from ear to ear. I prayed the scalpel would twist and twirl while I slept at night, carving my brain like a jack-o'-lantern, splitting the left and right hemispheres and effacing the memory of my existence. And this one, along the same themes, is called Syringe Scene. I want to shed adolescence like a snake sloths its skin, but manhood creeps up on me like osteoporosis or old age. Masculinity delivered in one cc doses of testosterone injected into my ass. Then, delaying, like delaying an orgasm, I hold back. If I slam the plunger, the drug won't absorb into the muscle. I must take my time to allow the viscous fluids to enter the body as the syringe becomes my mate in a union between flesh and the steel tip of the hypodermic needle. And the next one is called No Change. Late 1980s, Rome, New York, a boombox blasting on an outdoor basketball court. I am reclining on a red plastic slide listening to Michael Hutchins sing the lyrics to the NXX. Sing the lyrics to the NXS, NXS song, Don't Change. I can't resolve my mixed-up physical state, a half-boy, half-man with an amorphous, androgynous body. There's no resolution for my situation. I can't force the change I need to grow, to mature, to be normal like everyone else. A basketball bounces on the court, the cassette tape spins, the next song plays, and music helps me to forget who I am in this moment the person I haven't become yet. This is the last one in the set. It's called Retracing the Past. The crinkling of leaves and sowing trees, frost, cake, grass, and warm breath on glass all take me back to days elapsed, to a time that tested the courage of a soul still being formed, the tumor thwarting growth, the boy tightening his hold, the man kept incognito, shrouded in diffidence, abandoning his insurrection, striving for acceptance and yearning for a love that would never come. And that's end of poems. Wow. Francis, what do I say? I don't know. Wanting to engage in some kind of playful banter after hearing a set of poems like that seems so wrong. No, I think it's fine. <laughs> well, to me, I want to say, hey, how about those Yankees? You know? Yeah, hey, I love the but... Yankees. That's all right. <laughs> oh, because you share, man, such such powerful words that are you in your life. Yeah, and actually, what what's interesting is I'm like working on a memoir that's sort of based on that. I'm in, in the editing stage of that, so I'm not sure when that's going to be, be done, but I'm, that's one of my main projects right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you write, do you view yourself as being more of a storyteller or wordsmith when you write a set like that? I'd say more storyteller. Like I think everything, you know, like I work in video, I write short mm-hmm. stories, essays, poems, and I think everything is sort of the narrative for me. Like, you know, mm-hmm. what what's the hook? Because I think that's that's kind of appeals more to readers than than great prose or great poetry as far as like a writer. You know, I, I don't I feel like I'm I'm better storyteller than I would say a writer. Okay. You know, I don't think I asked you the last time you was here. And again, it was a while. Mm-hmm. Does it hurt you? Does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? No, I think it 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 hurts me to not write poetry. Um, okay. Talk to me. Yeah, I, I just think it's like, for me, it's like a natural form of expression, you know. And so, uh, it, it's it, like I said, it's catharsis a lot of times and especially in, in first draft and some of my older poems, but then, like I, I said, I go through them and revise them. Um, but I just, I think it's, it's a way to capture life and whatever your life is and, and kind of like heighten the experience of life by just paying attention to it. Mm. Again, as a seasoned professional, 
What are some of the poetic devices that you most often use when you're writing? Um, I think minimalism would be one. Humor. Um, okay. You know, I, I'm. I, it's free verse. You know, it's like I. I. I think of myself. You know, I'm not. I don't have an MFA. I'm not really an academic type. You know, poet. I'm mm-hmm. more at least what I was inspired by as, as poet was like Langston Hughes and mm. Charles Bukowski and Jack Kerouac. When I saw like, you could really have like short poems that were powerful and didn't need to have, you know, formal structure kind of like, mm. that's kind of what inspired me. Um, All right. So, you know, you made this statement earlier about a cake and I may have mm-hmm. asked you this one before. <laughs> Let's imagine that a poem is like a cake. What are some of the prevalent ingredients then that go into the concoction we call a poem? Ooh, whoa, that's a good question. Um, obviously, words, sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you have to, like, have different stages of baking that cake. And so maybe the better uh, analogy would be soup. You know, like okay. you have to throw in a bunch of stuff in the soup and let it cook for a while and then, you know, and then let it simmer. Um, in the case of poetry, you, I, at least the way I write it is I throw everything in that in a word doc if it is for my draft. And then, like, I'll, I'll just close it out and come back to it. And now I come back to it as an editor. So it's like it's okay. two different stages for me. It's like the writer and just whether I'm writing in a notebook or, or writing in a Word doc just to get everything out. And it's messy. And uh, and then when I come back to it, then I, okay, I can see like, okay, this is where the stanzas need to be divided. This is where the line needs to end. And um, so I guess that's my approach. Okay. I like the soup analogy. I may steal that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that might be better than a cake. All right. <laughs> so when you're writing, my friend, how does a poem know where to go? Do you lead or does it lead you? Um, I think it, it, for me, it kind of leads me, you know, like after that first draft stage, you know, like when you step back and look at it, well, wait a second, what you're actually saying is that. And then I think it's just a question of being open to where it wants to go. And, you know, okay. it's like, um, I guess, you know, like one way you think about it is like if you're a novelist, do you plot the whole story ahead of time or do you mm-hmm. like allow like your subconscious to take over? And I think it same thing in poetry in a much just smaller level mm-hmm. is you let the subconscious take over. You'd say, okay, that image hooked me in there, but you know, let's see where that goes. You know, with the set, like you just read, mm-hmm. how hard did you fight against writing it? I didn't. I, I, you know, I just I sort of like let it all out. You know what I okay. mean? But but okay, then yes. I, like I said, it's two different stages for me. Like you know that mm-hmm. it's that that like free like free writing. You know, let it all hang out, kind of, and then come back and say, okay, you know, that's what you feel. Those are your emotions. That's catharsis. Okay, but what what would interest a reader? You know, how do mm-hmm. I make this like if if a reader's coming to this, it's got to be more than just like what my experience is. You know, and I okay. think in that set, like like what you said, you know, why would anybody buy the book? I think you know, even my experiences are individual and personal. I think in a lot of ways, people who maybe don't feel comfortable in their own skin for whatever reason mm-hmm. could relate to a lot of those poems. Right. I'd like you to share with me, if you can, the titles of five poems in the book. Any five. Any five, okay. Uh, one would be tentacles. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see what else. Uh, Enchanted forest. That's another one. Um, inner antipathy. That's three. Um, inspired by Beckett. That's about a poem, and uh, and you know, it's, you know Beckett's line about failing. It's related to that. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the last one I would say is Autism Sleeps. That's about my mm-hmm. son. All right, all right, all right. What should you consider, Francis, when titling a poem? What should you consider? What do you, should you think about? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't 
give it too much thought. I kind of try and go with my gut instinct, you know, after I, after I, I write them and then just see like what really jumps out at me. And then, you mm-hmm. know, unless, it, unless I really hate it, then I'll, I'll toy with other ideas. But most of the time I just kind of, kind of go with my first, my first choice. Okay. You know, we're going to take a quick break here, but yeah. I have a question that I'd like mm-hmm. you to ponder while we're on this quick break. And then afterwards, when we come back, please answer it. Whenever you start writing a new book, what special preparation do you do to start the book? All right? Mm-hmm. And we'll be right back. favorite poets, one of my favorite people, Francis DiClemente. You know, again, this is a call-in show. So if you have a question for Francis, the number is 646-787-1631. Francis, walk us through the preparatory period for a new book. Okay, so I kind of mentioned that the preparatory period for me is just to write a whole bunch of poems. Okay. <laughs> and then, okay. It, write a whole bunch of poems and then like literally send them to like a local printer and print it out. Like I said, it could be like 200 pages. And then I just, I sit on the floor and I, I almost like a deck of cards and just say, yes, no, yes, no, you know, here's the jack of, jack of clubs or whatever. And, and just until I get like a whole collection. And it's like usually a full length book has got to be like 48 to like maybe 88 pages, something, something like that. So if I'll try and get to like maybe a hundred mm-hmm. extras and then I'll take the over the, the big picture and like, okay, this poem, all of these poems are, are going to be in the collection at some point. And then okay. I'll start like laying them out on the floor, dividing them into different groups, like 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 the narrative poems that I started with, and then the poems about my youth. Those those all gravitated towards sec- one section, and then there's other sections that are like minimal, you know. And this is just this example of this book, but you know, mm-hmm. they're all the all of my experiences have been the same process. I just start big and then call and strip and and take out, and then when I get all of the ones that I really like, then I go to the line level and, and, and go through multiple revisions. You know, I'm glad I asked that. <laughs> I don't know why it popped in my mind. Yeah. Are you saying that you could potentially start out with 200 poems? Uh, not quite that many, you know, but like I have just a Word doc on my computer okay. of unpub- right. unpublished poems, you know, and then I'll, I'll start, I'll print that, and then like I'll I'll group it together and I might just call it untitled poetry book, you know what I mean? Okay. And then I'll yes. jump all of those in there and then I'll get to, and then I'll, I'll say, no, I definitely don't want that. So then I'll put them back to like what a dump file or, uh, you know, that, you know, maybe that in another point, but for this particular book, these are the only poems that I'm going to, I'm going to choose. And then uh, I'll revise and cut and trim and, and then go to, go to each poem at the line editing level. Wow. But I mean, you know, different poets have concepts, you know, like um, I, I particularly don't. I mean, I have an idea. Mm-hmm. I do have other projects that are actually one project that's unpublished that is a, a concept uh, poetry book, um, really minimalistic and conceptual art almost. Um, but all the other poems, poetry books I had, they, they were just kind of that same process. When you write and you write from a minimalist perspective, what do you do with the material that you strip? Do you create new poems from it or throw it away? 
Mm, most of the time I throw it away because it's like in order to get to that minimal place, I took it away. And it's like, okay, okay. it's like I have now three lines instead of six. Are these three lines better? And if they mm-hmm. are, then I say, oh, then I don't need those other ones. But, you know, and some, sometimes I may put them back, you know, or, okay. or like okay. you said, they, maybe they become a different poem. Um, but, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's fun to play with, to see, like, how much meaning you can retain when you mm-hmm. keep stripping it away. And I like, I like the way the, the white space looks on the page mm-hmm. and where I've done with this collection and more of my more recent poetry is breaking up lines instead of having like eight lines run together, break them, you know, two and two and two, you know, mm-hmm. here's a strange question. Mm-hmm. Do you become the white space? Do I be? Well, that is a deep question. <laughs> I'm on a roll tonight, Francis. It's because of you. I do kind of have an answer in there. Okay. The white space in, in the minimalism, what I like is I think the reader fills it in. It's up to mm. the reader to kind of like fill those white spaces and like to, to devise meaning or, or de- you know, derive meaning from, from the white spaces. Like, you know, it's open for interpretation. I think when you strip away a lot of stuff, more, more of it becomes open to interpretation. Well, that's one of the reasons why I enjoy having you with me. I always learn something. Francis, please share some more of your work. Okay, so these are going to be like uh, a few minimalistic poems, and so I'll read a few more than just the the four, or just the five. But So the first one is called Ending All Attempts. I have stopped bemoaning the memory of unreciprocated affection. And that's that's one poem there. Uh, This one is called Tentacles. I must free myself from myself, remove the fingers from around my throat. Um, okay, so this one called Mattress Moment, and it, it, it's, um, if you've seen The Godfather before, maybe you know uh, Hyman Roth, he's one of the gangsters, and he, he was talking to Michael Corleone and said, you know, Michael, this life of crime, this is the life we have chosen. So uh, this is kind of a take on this. It's called Mattress Moment. You don't get to cry no fair, Mr. Hyman Roth. This is the life you have chosen. You don't get to pine for your salad days, whatever the fuck that means. You don't get to flip over the mattress on the bed you've made. So that's the third point. I'm going to go a little bit longer because some of these are short. Um, mm-hmm. This one is called The Wanting is the Hardest Part, and this is a takeoff of Tom Petty's you know, famous song, The Waiting is the Hardest Part. The wanting is the hardest part. Tom Petty was wrong. The waiting isn't the hardest part. The wanting is the hardest part. Wanting fucks everything up. Wanting a better job, a better marriage, a better house, a better life. That seed of desire fucks with your head, makes you think you can be something you're not. What if I discarded desire? What if I stopped wanting? What if I no longer sought a better life? Can I let go of that fantasy and accept who I am right now without seeking a better version of myself, the idealized me I hold inside my head? Um, This one is called Camera Angle. What would I choose if I were given a chance to lead a different life? What mistakes would I correct? What new road would I take? But you can't splice the scenes of your life to edit the past. You can only point the camera forward and zoom into the future. Uh, let's see. And then um, this last one is called Resolution, very short one, too. And um, uh, I hope this offers a little bit of hope here after those dark thoughts. Okay. You must live the life you have and not the one you want. Mm. And end of poems. Okay, Francis, but that last one, <laughs> I was settling in and you were done. <laughs> That's it. I, I, can read oh. I can read one more for that set if you no, want. No, 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 I no. I don't mean the entire set. I just meant that very last poem. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I mean told that. you it was short. <laughs> read that one again, that last one, because I was really, wow, I need to perk yeah. up with this one. <laughs> okay, uh, resolution. So it's in two different stanzas. So okay. the first one is you must live the life you have. 
And then the second one is, and not the one you want. So you must live the life you have and not the one you want. Well, Francis, why can't I live the one I want? Because the universe is opposed to us, you know? It's like you don't get what the you universe. want in this life. <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you <laughs> are extremely self-aware. Yeah, true. What is one of the first steps to become self-aware, to becoming self-aware? Uh, I, I don't know. I think... I think, you know, understanding your, your strengths, your weaknesses, understanding your uh, fallibility, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm Christian, so I, I you know, I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm fallible. So I think, yes. you know, recognizing that is, is part of it. Mm-hmm. 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 Wow. <laughs> Here's a fun question, too. Mm-hmm. If you could choose another poet to serve as your mentor, who would that person be? Ooh, wow, that's a good one. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like I said, Langston Hughes was the one that mm-hmm. really op- opened me up because I just saw, like, you know, you could have these powerful poems that were, you know, um, very heavy emotions, um, and they could be short, and they didn't have to be formal. You know, you think of like the, my one of my favorite is the calm, cool face of the river. Ask me for a kiss. You know, it's called the suicide. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, so I would say him for sure. I'd like to hang out with Charles Bukowski, but you know, he he might punch me or something. <laughs> In terms of that Langston Hughes piece, do you have it with you by chance? I don't, but I could pull it up. Yeah, please, please. I like that very much. Yeah. I've never heard that one. You never heard that one? No. no oh, I don't wow. think. That's like a famous one. And that's like, you talk about brevity, you know, mm-hmm. and powerful message. I mean, it's called Suicide Note with apostrophe. Okay. And it's the calm, cool face of the river asked me for a kiss. So you get the image of somebody diving in the water. And it's just, I, I just love that poem. That was it. That's it. <laughs> Maybe it's hard, hard to hear over over like the line, but if you were to see it on the page, it would really mm-hmm. jump out. You, the calm, wow. cool face of the river, asked me for a kiss. That's beautiful, <laughs> right? Now, with this particular book, are you hoping that the book resonates with a broad range of readers, or are you attempting to target a specific audience? I mean, I think, you know, I think any author wants as many readers as possible. Um, but I, I think there are elements of, of the book that would appeal more to older people, you know, like mm-hmm. past late 30s, 40s, you know, uh, mm-hmm. reconciling with, you know, your life and, you know, the choices you've made. And, you know, I think that for sure that would appeal to certain people. All right. So if you were to give potential readers' advice before they open the book, what would you tell them? Well, I would, you know, I would warn them that they're going to be in for some dark stuff. Um, mm-hmm. but hope, hopefully there's, there's some hope there, too. Um, but, you know, I know, I know people do those trigger warnings. I, I, don't know, I don't necessarily know that you need that, but I just say there's some dark stuff. My aunt's a nun. And she was mm-hmm. here visiting us, you know, and I gave her a book and you know, I said, okay, Aunt, uh, Aunt T, just so you know, there's some dark <laughs> stuff in there and some profanity. So when you're flying back and you're reading it, you know. <laughs> you don't want to automatically combust. Yeah, <laughs> right. Francis. <laughs> All right. I would like to know, though, have you ever written a poem that humbled or frightened you? Um, there's a poem that I wrote, yeah, that really humbled me because it 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 was almost like I I wasn't there. I was just a portal for it. Um, mm. Yeah, and uh, I'm trying to find it real quick. All right, I love that. Yeah. I can I can maybe dig it up. Uh, yeah, let's see real quick. 
Okay. You All want right. me to read it? You want yes, me to of read course. it? Of course. So, yeah, like I was, I was working a um, a night shift, and I just came home and, and was in the parking lot of my apartment complex, and the words just came to me, and I, I kind of don't know what they mean. I sort of know what they mean, but I just like the fact that it was, it was the, like again, the universe sent it to me. So, uh, it's called Revelation. And it's uh, a courtship of contempt filled with swirling fury and churning angst, not halted by the hands of God. Zealous rituals express unwavering faith and outstretched arms set hearts aflame. Trees topple under a crescent moon, a gleaming scythe that carves the frost night. And as fragments of identity rupture into paralyzing self-hate. So, yeah, like I... I don't know where that came from, but I was lucky, and and really, I just edited a couple words here and there, but it was pretty much in in, in its original form. Well, maybe we were not supposed to hear it because it was really choppy towards the end, so I didn't get a chance to hear what you said. Oh, okay. Please, please share it again. Oh, please share it again. Okay, sorry. That's all right. It happens all the time on this program. Okay. Uh, you hear okay now? Yes. Okay, very good. All right, I'll, I'll read it. Okay. So it's called Revelation, a courtship of contempt filled with swirling fury and churning angst, not halted by the hands of God. Zealous rituals un- express unwavering faith and outstretched arms set hearts aflame. Trees topple under a crescent moon, a gleaming scythe that carves the frost burnt night invoking stones to crush the gnarled root as fragments of identity rupture into paralyzing self-hate. Wow. How about those Yankees, Francis? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's a kid, but I don't know what to say. (laughs) How about those Yankees? (laughs) (laughs) Well, please share some more of your work. Okay, so um, this is another set here, and uh, I hope in this section there's like a a little bit more positive sense of gratitude and compassion. So this first one is called um, Fat Man Walking. God loves the obese man walking on the street. He doesn't penalize the man for his girth. That's because size is insignificant to the creator of the universe. Body fat and waist circumference hold little value when the gaze is directed inward, where it belongs, beyond the flesh, to the place where the soul lives. Uh, this next is another short, a short one. It's called Empathy Required. Who knows another person's story? Who knows the sorrow they endure? What measure of empathy can we call forth within ourselves to see other people as more than objects to ignore. Um, uh, this is the, uh, the title poem. This is the, uh, called Destination. I am here planted in this place, so I'll make the best of it. I'll drive a stake in the ground and put up a big welcome sign, convincing myself that this was the journey and the destination I had planned all along. Yeah, right. These are the lies I need to believe and the truth I must invent. Okay, this one is, this is called Witness. Um, and this was like a, um, a moment where I observed something and, and this is what, kind of what I was talking about, where like you have to take those opportunities when you see them to write, write things down. And it's another example of like I always have a notebook with me. You know, I know people mm-hmm. write on their phones and stuff, but I, I can't do it. So I always have a little, little, note, little notebook with me. It's called Witness. I look up as a group of birds circles buildings in downtown Syracuse. I resist the urge to pull out my cell phone and snap a picture for Instagram. Instead, I hold my gaze skyward, letting the wind swirl around my face and the rain patter my forehead as the birds duck in unison behind a limestone structure, the moment preserved nowhere except in my mind. No pictures retained or sound recorded, no trace of the birds in digital form. And I think that's the point, that's life, a collection of these impromptu glimpses of existence built into a collage, a kaleidoscope of images demanding attention when presented. 
Okay, and I think I'll just do two more in this this set. And this is called Being a Dad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being a dad means improvisation. It means peeing in the sink when your wife and son monopolize the only bathroom in the apartment. Being a dad means admitting you don't know the answers, can't figure out the solutions, don't have a fucking clue how to stop that kid from crying. Being a dad means living with less, less money, less time, less sleep, less sex. Being a dad means loving your child even when you feel exhausted and aggravated. Being a dad means doing your best every day, but accepting the failure built into the equation of marriage and parenthood. Being a dad means grateful for the gift of being a dad. And then I will just read one more in this section. And this is uh, uh, about my son, and this is kind of like – a moment that we had together, but then my imagination went off in, in, in tangent. So this is a dark poem, but uh, hopefully it, it has a little hope at the end. Fingers and hair. I run my fingers through my son's tangled mop of brown hair as he lies next to me in bed. It's 4.30 a.m. and we can't fall asleep. He waves his hands in front of his face, making stimming motions and I imagine his head slamming against the windshield, a spider web crack forming in the sheet of glass and blood pouring from an opening in his skull. I press my hand to his head to try to stop the bleeding, but the crimson liquid slips through my fingers and stains the carpet and fabric seat covers. I am reminded of a gospel passage, Luke 12:7. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. I hold some of my hips. I hold some of my son's hairs in my hand and realize I cannot prevent a car accident, fall, gunshot wound, or disease from killing my son. I can't prolong or preserve his life. I can only love him while he still lives. His hands whip in front of his face, and he prattles phrases only he understands. I bury my fingers deeper into the mound of his hair and whisper, come on now, sleepy time, Colin. End of poem. Yeah, a couple of seconds to allow that set to <laughs> settle in. Mm. Francis, how would you describe your poetry in terms of what it communicates about the human condition? Hmm. I think um, what it communicates about the human condition is that, um, like I said, we're all fallible. We all make mistakes. Um, and a big part of it is for me is reconciling um, like what you can, what you can attain in this life because it's, you know, what your hopes and your dreams are before when they meet the concrete road of, of the world, you know, sort of like George Bailey always wants to leave Bedford Falls, but he never gets out, you know, and sort of like living with that. Um, And so I like to entertain those ideas, Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, the dark, poems that are in there sometimes it's just a moment and pleading that you get Mm. frustrated with the world and then Mm -hmm. i'll capitalize on that and say okay that's how i feel right now it's not how i feel all the time but right now okay and then what does that inspire me and then jot that down you know and then go from there um you know i was going to say it's funny i had that conversation with someone earlier today that the way you're feeling in one minute could be totally different the next right right Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess owning up to those feelings and say, okay, yes. that's how I feel right now. But, you know, at least from my perspective, I strive to make it more than just emotions. Like somehow it's got to, it's got to translate to, like I said, it's got to be more than just my experience. It has to, to translate to a reader who's coming from a different perspective. Now, again, I go back to that word seasoned again. Mm-hmm. In what ways has your poetry changed since you started writing? Any big thing you can can point out um i you know i i think i'm more rigorous with the editing i think that okay. that's really big you know where before i would be satis more satisfied with um you know a couple drafts now i'm not i really want to to hone it as best as i can um and i think also finding finding similar themes and grouping you know collections according to those themes um you know, they, all almost all of my poems gravitate to either narrative, where it's like a story and 
a lot of times that can just be like fiction too, you know, like cake mistake, you know, that was totally fictional um, or it's philosophical. Right. You know, would you do us a favor, my friend, and mm-hmm. a couple more, please? <laughs> I know I'm putting yeah. you on the spot. That's okay. No, no, no. Just a couple I, more. I'd love that. I'll do this section. Uh, these are, hang on one second. Okay, these are poetry-inspired poems. So, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so like I said, inspired by Beckett. This is a short one. If you are a writer and your writing sucks, Write some more until your writing sucks less. So that was. Um, uh, and this is how I feel too. Um, poet is this title of this poem is a very short one. It's called Poetry Involuntary. In my case, poetry is involuntary. I don't write poetry. Poetry writes itself for me. That's one. Um, and then I like this one because. Uh, this is called to edit or not, because I think in, you know, any writer, it's like just because you write doesn't mean anybody's going to read it. And poetry is a tough, tough market because a lot of people don't read poetry that much. You know, people read more, more um, novels. So I think you have to like, that's one thing that I always tell myself. It's like, you know, you have to write and just expect that you're going to get rejected and expect that, you know, nobody's ever going to read your book and you have to do it anyway. <laughs> you, you have to have the, you, I, I think you really have you to have You are truly a ray of sunshine, a ray of sunshine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just the way I think. It's like, you it's know, I think you, have, I think you have to have like the compulsion and the burning desire to, to do it no matter what. And so this is what this poem kind of like taps into. It's called To Edit or Not. Poetry demands precision. It requires you to nitpick, to identify and fix the flaws in your copy, or else abandon revision and celebrate the inconsequence of your mistakes, since no one's reading this shit anyway. You know, <laughs> through writing the truth I must invent. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about yourself? Any new insights? Well, I I think, you know, it's like, I think I learned like all of these experiences kind of led me to this point, you know, and I think it, it gave me some satisfaction to take those experiences and, and at least try to carve something out of it that resembles art, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I guess, you know, in sense of resiliency and um, to find hope at the end of the day, even when you struggle. Have your best poems already arrived or are they on the way? Oh, I don't know. Uh, that's a hard one. It's like, that's hard. That's hard for me to say. You know, I think that's for somebody else to decide. You know, I hopefully okay. I'm improving. Hopefully I'm improving. Mm-hmm. All right, all right, I like that. Now, if poetry were banned tomorrow, then, how would you express yourself? What would you do? Well, I think, you know, I kind of considered myself an interdisciplinary artist or multi-genre, mm-hmm. since I write poetry, I write prose, essays, short stories, and I'm like a filmmaker as well. So, I mean, I think I'd tap into film and photography, um, and, and I'd write, you know, you know, fiction or, or, or nonfiction if I couldn't write poetry. Um, but I think they'd have to hold me back from not writing poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that you were a writer of short stories. Yeah, I've written some short stories, yeah. Do you have a collection? No, I don't. I mean, I, my big prose project, like I said, is this uh, memoir that I'm working on. Um, so that that's been taking up all my time, and I'm working on like like I said, the play about Edward Hopper. Yes. And some yes. film projects. So. <laughs> You're the man. You're the man. Where can we purchase the book? Okay, so the book is through the publisher. It's Poets Choice. Period. Dot, dot I N. Um, but it's also available on Amazon and Bookshop and BarnesandNoble.com. So. Mm-hmm. All right. So, again, you 
kind of share that you've got a lot on your plate. Mm-hmm. What is next for you creatively? Tell us more. Flesh it out for us. Okay, so I have I have a, a collection that's unpublished uh, that I said was conceptual, and that's really minimalistic. And it's basically how I would describe it. It's called alphabet expression, verbal juxtapositions. And basically it, it's taking like word pairings, like vocabulary words. Um, and it's just like two words on a page um, and a whole collection of them according to the alphabet. Um, so like things that just interested me because I'm like vocabulary nut. So like one would be like autistic, artistic, you know, and you mm-hmm. see that on a oh, page. Wow. But it, it, it's in unpublished form. It's completed, but I think I, I, I'm, you know, I need like a designer to really flesh that out. Like um, different words like different and diffident. Um, patients, like patients, plural, and patients, you know, what the, the, you know. So it's it's a collection like that where it's like it's word pairings, kind of a hybrid thing, kind of a conceptual art thing, and, and so I'm working on that, you know. To tr- hopefully that'll find the light of day at some point. Um, like I said, I'm working on a memoir and a couple of uh, documentary film projects. Wow. You know, Francis, you remind me of the relative that you can't wait to arrive and you don't want them to leave. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> I suppose it's better than the relative you want to kick out. <laughs> that is true. That is true. That is true. <laughs> leave it to you to put that spin on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you, man. We've come to the end of our poetic journey as usual, I, I love your work. No, thank you so much. You write I with really authenticity. Oh yes, you write with authenticity. The 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 rawness of it, it just amazes me. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful work. And I'd like you to come back. I mean, it's been two years or more. Yeah. If you'd like to read from any of your unpublished collections, your short stories, your memoirs. Yeah, I'd love to. I'm serious. Anything that you'd like to read from, (laughs) and we'll structure it so that it's time for you to read. Very few questions from me. More time for you to share your work. I like your questions. Your questions are interesting. It's good conversation. Well, thank you, buddy. I appreciate (laughs) that. All All right. right. All right. I don't want you to leave, but okay. I know you've got a life to live. Okay, the thanks truth, a lot. I appreciate it. Yes. The truth I must invent is available now. Go out and buy it. And as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, Francis. Good night. Take care. Hey, Francis. Francis, someone's called in. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. We have a caller. Oh, all right. <laughs> oh, let's see if we this person off. Wow, okay. Area code 562. The first three numbers are 673. Do you have a question for Francis? Good evening. Uh, I do. Hey, all right, great. <laughs> thank you, Michael, for having uh, Francis on your show tonight. I've been a big uh, fan of his perspective since uh, the early 90s. Um, I was wondering, Francis, if you could talk a little bit about how do you get your words in front of the people who need to hear them? Has it become more difficult as we transition from the written word to like more of an electronic uh, world that we live in today? Uh, yeah, I think it's really, yeah, I think it's really hard. Um, it's just, yeah, for me, I just submit to a lot of places and like, I get rejected way more than I get accepted. Um, so it, it, yeah, I think you just kind of like plug away. Um, are you talking more like in a spoken word type thing or? I'm, I'm just thinking like the message that you have in your perspective to get in front of the people who should be hearing it, maybe people who aren't somebody who's going to go out and buy a book of poetry or like, how can you get your message in front of someone who maybe isn't a fan of poetry or what have you? I think you have a very strong voice and a message that people need to hear, but it's maybe somebody who's not going to seek you out, but needs to hear your message. 
Right. Yeah, I guess, you know, like I, I try and uh, send books, lo- at least locally in Syracuse area, to libraries, and hopefully, uh, you know, somebody might pick them up there and local bookstores. Um, you know, shows like Michael's really are, are like, I think, one of the best opportunities for poets. Um, but, you know, the way podcasts are now, I think it's, that's a great opportunity. Open mic type reading groups, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's about it for what I know. Well, Colin, you do you have any suggestions? <laughs> No, I didn't know if I'd be a chance to uh, talk to maybe some students at local high schools or community colleges or something like that, maybe, uh, you know, expose them to the art that they might not get exposed Mm -hmm. to otherwise. Yeah, that's a great idea. Great idea. Wow. All right, well, thank you very much for uh, for sharing your perspective with the world. Yeah, thanks for the question. appreciate it. Thank you. Fantastic question. Thank you, Carla. All right. Thank you. All right, everyone. Take care. Good night. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.